Grateful to be with you and want to invite you to open up to Isaiah chapter 7. We'll move to a couple of different places, but Isaiah chapter 7 in your Old Testament portion of your Bibles. One of the things that we, I think, often are tempted to do around this particular time is just be happy, right? This is, this is the disposition of Christmas, is to display joy, to be joyful, to be happy. And so the question for us is, what if you don't feel it? What if actually, you know, I got friends who think Christmas is actually not that exciting, who uh, refuse to play music, I know, just stay with me for a second, Re- refuse to play music, re- refuse to get dressed up, and I saw Derek Wilkin refuse to wear such awesome jackets, which I just don't understand. I don't understand the merriment that they would refuse uh, in such a way. But I think it's important for the Christian to realize, and we talk about this often at Church in the Square, that the Christian is one who is always sorrowful and always celebrating. We realize that as as the veil has been pulled back, as it were, when we see the world as it is, we are always desperately aware of our need, of the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of our hearts, and yet we are always aware that there is a Redeemer. There is a God who is with us. And this is what I hope through God's Word to help us see, savor, and enjoy even more as we head into our Christmas festivities this evening. Uh, Or if you are biblically accurate, you open up your presence tomorrow. So would you pray with me uh, as we go to God and ask for his help? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that in the hustle, not just of his season, but of life, you are a God who is there and you are not silent. That you are a God who is there and you are a God who is with us. So thank you that when we say you are there, we are not pointing to the far reaches of the universe only. We're also pointing right in our hearts that you are the God who is a very present help in this world. So help me, help us as we come to your word now to not gloss over it, to not hustle through it, but to hear that brilliant and beautiful, still small voice of the only one who truly knows our name and gives us a new name. And so we pray that in this Advent moment that you would arrest our attention, you would resurrect our joy, that you would give us a righteous picture of the Savior who has come. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, you should know King Solomon was massively egotistical. Um, So very different than any leadership that we have today who are all incredibly humble. But King Solomon had a massive ego. And one of the things that began to happen as he was king over Israel is that he overextended the kingdom too far. He had too many building projects, namely the temple, too many wars that he was fighting, and so he was overstretched, and he began to borrow from the north to help the south where Jerusalem was, and this created incredible friction. And and if we're familiar with the story of God's people, Israel, we realize that the kingdom broke in two at a particular juncture because of Solomon's ego. And so when we step into Isaiah chapter 7, this is a word of God given to Isaiah as the kingdom is split in the middle of darkness, in the middle of brokenness, in the middle of tension, in the middle of terror, are you picking up where we're headed yet? A place perhaps not unlike Chicago in 2019, a place like my heart and like yours, at least that's what I hope to prove to you tonight through God's word. Look at Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jothan, the son of uh, Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin was king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. 
When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart, hear this, of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Let me break it down for us this way. The northern kingdom was in league with Syria. They were coming out the southern kingdom where Ahaz as the king, and Ahaz does not have the resources to defend himself. So he is not only unable to defend himself against the north, but the north is now in league with Syria. He's got all kinds of problems. He's cornered. He's rightly terrified. The poetic language even tells us he is like shaking like a leaf in the wind. And so are his people. He is terrified. He is outmatched. He is outnumbered. He is cornered. It is dark. And it's in this bleak moment, in Ahaz's bleak predicament, that God speaks to Isaiah and church. How good is it that God speaks in the middle of the dark? How good is it that God speaks when we are cornered, when we are terrified, when we are outmatched, when we have no way of making heads or tails, right or wrong, up or down, when we are confused, when we are left out here, God speaks. Here's what he says in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jeshuab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah and terrify it, and let us con conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabal uh, as, as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Verse 8, for, he, for the heat of Syria is Damascus, or rather the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So God gives this encouragement. He gives this instruction because it's in the mind of these two kingdoms to either replace Ahaz or take him out. To either replace him or to wipe out the country as a whole, or rather to include him in their particular force, to make them part of their kingdom. But notice the fourfold encouragement given to the king. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and let not your heart be faint. God's reason for his encouragement is simply this. He's got it. Did you notice this language? He's got it. God's got this. He's called these two prevailing kingdoms smoldering stumps of firebrand. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awesome. It sounds like he dominates them. God will deliver Ahaz. God will deliver Judah. God will preserve the Davidic messianic line that he has vowed to prosper through the southern kingdom. He's got this. Is this not reminiscent of when Moses encouraged the people of God when their backs were against the wall, a water wall, as the Egyptians were bearing down on them and they were trapped by the Red Sea, cornered, terrified, outmatched. It was dark. Hear this from Exodus 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. 
The Lord will fight for you. And you've got one job. Just be quiet and let him do it. This was the message to God's people. This was the message to Ahaz. And I'd I'd like to suggest to you, this is the message for us today. We are cornered. We are terrified. We are outmatched. It is dark. But the Lord will fight for you. You just need to be quiet. I just need to be quiet. Now, here's the question. What in the world does any of this have to do with Advent? What in the world does a king on his back foot and a people on the edges of the Red Sea have to do with Christmas time, this talk of war and conflict? I know you've been thinking it, so let me break it down for us this way. In her sermon entitled The Bottom of the Night, Fleming Rutledge explains the importance of acknowledging tension and darkness and death, especially at Advent. Here's what she says. In the church, this is a season This is the season of Advent. It's superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas. But in truth, it's the season for contemplating the judgment of God. Parenthetically, Merry Christmas. Advent is the season that when properly understood, dungeons should not be moved too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. As our Lord Jesus tells us, unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. How great is the darkness? Advent, she continues, bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. Advent begins in the dark and moves to the light. But we don't like to begin in the dark, do we? The light feels really good. Let's just start there. I get it. But if we move too quickly or too glibly, we'll miss the point. By and large, we just want to be in the twinkling sunshine of a moment, and it's totally understandable. But for the sake of understanding and actually anticipating rightly the light of joy and the elation of Christmas time, we must consider the dark because we must deal with the darkness or it'll show up on January 1st just like it did last year. Christmas has become incredibly sentimental. I know this is perhaps saying nothing new. And this, is, this could not be more f- further from the reality of what Christmas, the Christian Christmas story is meant to be about. Because, in fact, we have to articulate that we're talking about the Christian Christmas story in this particular day and age because there are so many different narratives about Christmas time. Sentimentality, as it were, is an event or an experience marked by or governed by feelings and emotional idealism. It's this superficial understanding to which Rutledge is referring. Think about bright colors. Think about hot chocolate, particularly with a little bit of whipped cream and crumbled up peppermint on top of it. Christmas lights and matching pajamas. That's what we're talking about when we talk about sentimentality. These holiday images, for for many of us, maybe not all of us, conjure up really warm and wonderful emotions. This is a wonderful time of year. In fact, we've penned a song. This is the most wonderful time of year. Now let me chase ahead before you get really angry at me and, and, and really disregard your Instagram, Instagram game that you've already got unlocked for the past month. Sentimentality is not inherently evil. Matching pajamas are, though, just for the, the clarity. <laughs> Generally speaking, <laughs> sentimentality is not evil. God created your emotions. God created those feelings that you feel to communicate with others, even to understand ourselves. However, the issue is when sentimentality overshadows substance. Am I preaching to you yet? 
It's when sentimentality overshadows substance, when nostalgia becomes central. Nostalgia specifically and sentimentality in general, this is not an annual ailment for us. This is not just this recurring thing that we face every December. All right, we're going to get sentimental again and nostalgic. We are these kinds of people year-round. NPR reported last Wednesday that the second most watched show on Friends all this year was Friends. Think about that. Despite the changes in the way that television is made, the way that entertainment is done, and a lot of people criticizing that particular show as overtly white and mean-spirited, no matter what, we keep watching Friends. This show is 25 years old. Some of you aren't 25 and you watch Friends. We keep watching it. Not only so, but almost every contract year, every major streaming platform engages in this price all-out war for the three holy grails of nostalgic entertainment, The Office, Seinfeld, and Friends. Some of you right now, those warm fuzzies that don't show up with matching pajamas, you're like, this is my game. This is what I'm talking about. This is my whole night you have just described. Reportedly, Netflix just landed Seinfeld for 2021 for $500 million. They're cashing in on our nostalgia. We're not, we're not watching these shows because we don't know the storylines. We're not watching them to discover something new. There's nothing to discover, only relive. That's nostalgia. Dr. Tim Wileshut said this, professor of psychology at University of Southampton, understanding our idolization and the way that we like to edit our memories, making us feel better than we actually really are by turning our memories into something that they truly are not. He says, one reason that we do this is that nostalgia can help us overcome psychological challenges, like loneliness or a sense that life is meaningless. In other words, friends comforts us. It's nice to be reintroduced to these six friends and watch how evil they are because it makes us feel better about our lives because it's kind of funny along the way. Christmas sentimentality helps us feel better in a life that really doesn't make sense, is broken and messy. In fact, many people look at religion as a whole as literally, literally a sentimental project meant to prop us up and make us feel better. And for some of us, that's exactly what religion is. So it seems what we settle for is intellectual comfort and psychological escape. We retreat from it through entertainment and that holiday spirit. Advent, though, begins in the dark. In darkness, we're tempted to escape the discomfort, the pain, and the loneliness. And without gospel remedy, we routinely choose facsimiles of light, like sentimentality and nostalgia, instead of dealing with the darkness that is ever before us. Cornered, terrified, and outmatched, it gets really dark. What the scriptures teach us at the Red Sea what the scriptures teach us with King Ahaz is that in these dark moments, we have a God who is not just over the dark, but steps into it. We have a God who is not just empathetic and that he looks at us and feels sorry for us. We have a God who is able to engage, able to enter in with something simply understood as his presence. That God is a present God. God is a God who is there. He does not just overlook our lives. He steps in and engages our lives. And when we say this, what do we really mean? Because when we talk about the presence of God, that can be nostalgic too. That can be sentimental. That God is a present God. What this means is at least three things. That God knows. In other words, he knows everything. 
To say that God is present means that he knows all of our thoughts, all of the situation before we even can comprehend it. He has complete understanding of the situation, even through darkness. When we can't see what's before us, God already knows it all fully well. Secondly, what it means that he is present is that he acts. So God is not simply one, and perhaps this is your vision of God, that he knows everything and he just sits there unable to do anything about the situation or the knowledge that he has. But he is a God who knows everything and he acts accordingly. In his presence, the Lord doesn't just know things, but he engages in response. He is able, therefore he speaks into the darkness, into our bleak circumstance. He is a God who is there and he is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer says. He delivers his people and changes. He reorients their situations and their lives and brings about their good. But he's not just a God who knows And he's not just a God who acts as if he's some sort of mechanical movement where he has information and then he responds accordingly because this is what the algorithm says he must do. No, his primary motivation comes to this third aspect of his presence, which is that God cares. God knows, God acts, and God cares. His presence is not void of relationship. He is not obligated to act. He is motivated to act by his affection for his people. See, underneath his knowledge and underneath his action is his love. Therefore, his motivation in knowing and doing according to his will is based upon his affection for his creation. He loves us. So he doesn't just do stuff because he can and because he knows. He does stuff because he loves us. So in the darkness of uncertainty, this is the God who is there. This is the God who is present. He acts, he is not silent, and he cares. He loves his people. This is the God who is present at the Red Sea, which is exactly what makes the response of God's people actually quite terrifying. The rest of that that portion in Acts 14 is recorded this way. They said, the people of God said to Moses, "Is is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You remember, the people of God were in Egypt because they were enslaved in Egypt. And their backs are against the wall. They are cornered. They're overmatched. Things are getting dark. And they said, let's just go back and be slaves. This is probably why Moses said, you need to just be silent. You're saying crazy stuff. You've got bad ideas. Just be quiet. In other words, what begins to set in is nostalgia. Take us back to what's familiar This is really uncomfortable living by faith. Take me back to what's familiar. Take me back to what we called home. Take me back to where it might still be dark. I might still be enslaved, but at least it's familiar. See, what begins to happen in nostalgia is we edit our past and make it seem like life back there wasn't as bad as it really was. Life outside of God's grace, outside of following him, was not as bad as it would be really experience that the darkness actually feels like light and the light actually feels like darkness. What I'd like to suggest to you, church, is that nostalgia is Satan's spiritual gaslighting. He makes us look back and reconsider and completely forget what is up, what is down, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is beautiful. The God, this is the God who is present with Ahaz in Syria as Israel bears down upon him. The story continues. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, look at verse 10. In Isaiah 7, ask a sign of the Lord uh, your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or high as the heavens. And Ahaz says this, in other words, God says, ask me whatever you want. It could be as low as hell, it could be as high as heaven. Here's what Ahaz says, I will not ask. 
I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, Ahaz gets real sentimental. He's not a religious dude. He's not a kind dude. He's not a good dude. And all of a sudden he's like, you're not supposed to put the Lord God to the test. He's not putting the Lord to the test. God told him, ask me anything. And he pastes on this religion. Like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, God. Are you trying to trick me? Ahaz gets sentimental and he loses his way yet again. This is not just the God who is present at the Red Sea, not just the God who is present with his people as he pulls them out of Egypt, not just the God who is present with Ahaz as the kingdoms are coming down upon him. This is the God who is present with us in the darkness of this world when the shadows actually seem good and comforting, when the darkness actually feels like light especially when those shadows persist even through the holidays because for many of us, the holidays do not bring comfort. They reveal how uncomfortable this life really is for us. As the brokenness of our neighborhood perhaps persists around us, the evil that prevails in many of the systems of our city, they begin to overwhelm our concept of seeing the true and beautiful God at work. As the folly of human wisdom seems to push agendas and ideas that actually gain hold and gain leverage in this world, things seem to get dark as we continue to disregard the God of the Bible. As this evil in our hearts persists, absent of the seasoning of God's light and salt, his truth and joy, this situation gets bad and it gets worse. And apparently one of the things we do is we just hide in a Spotify holiday playlist. We ignore it. Because we just are that nostalgic. In fact, we probably don't even go to the Spotify playlist. We play a vinyl record because we're that nostalgic. Because it totally sounds better, right? I'm sure. I know. It, it actually does. The situation is really dark and bleak. And one of the things we're encouraged to do over the holidays is just paste happiness over it. And so we come to God and we actually believe that God is just a different kind of glue a different kind of paste over the problems of this world, one that is more spiritual and religious, but still just as hopeless. But all of this points us to something. The point of all of this is to not steal your joy and your enthusiasm around the holidays. Some of you probably feel that this is quite curmudgeonly of me, but that's not it at all. In fact, it's only when we get past the sentimentalism, past the nostalgia that we find out what real joy looks like. You do not know real joy unless you walk through the darkness. You do not know real joy by ignoring the brokenness of this world. That's not who our God is. That's not what our God has done. Therefore, that's not the kind of people we are called to be. Look at verse 14. This is who God is. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ahaz, sentimental, crazy, evil man. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Ahaz rejects the invitation for God to bring a sign, but God brings a sign nevertheless. Why? Because he's that good. He's that faithful. He's that kind. He's that gracious. There are a couple of historical options here for us to understand who in Ahaz's time this particular verse is referring to, but there is little debate about who this Emmanuel would be in just a few generations. You see, when a young teenage girl was cornered by life, full of terror and outmatched by the cultural power around her, God was faithful and God was with her. Turn to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. 
as we round third and head for home, as they say. First book of the New Testament, Matthew, if you get to Mark and Luke and John, go back to the left. Mark chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her to shame, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But as he was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Hear this, my brothers and sisters, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When they were cornered, when they were outmatched, when they were terrified, when it was dark, God drew near. Matthew takes God's word spoken to Ahaz centuries previous and applies it to Mary, applies it to Joseph, applies it to the birth of Jesus, who he knows is the very presence of God. He is the very faithfulness of God. Jesus is the essence of full knowledge made flesh, the word made flesh. He is the very essence of God in action. He was sent. He entered time. He took on flesh at just the right time. Jesus is the essence of God's love because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Matthew helps us to see and makes this connection ultimately that God has now forever become present with his people through Christ, Emmanuel, he is so present with his people, in fact, that we get to call him by his name. We get to call him God with us. Because this is not simply a God who took us out of the darkness, but he entered into the darkness for us and with us, which led British novelist Dorothy Sayers to say these immortal words. The incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrow and death, he has nevertheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted up for himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and the thought and thought it well worth his while. This is no sentimental savior. This is no name that is merely nostalgic. This is the name that is above every name. This is the savior who came to save us fully and completely by becoming like us. You see what corners you doesn't corner him. You see what terrifies you? He is terrified by Jesus. When you feel outmatched, Jesus by himself outmatches all of your fears. All of the darkness that has swallowed you up, he swallowed up that darkness. Therefore, if you feel cornered, run to the corner that has a name. If you feel outmatched, run to the one who outmatches all things that could come at you. If you are terrified, come to the one who will satisfy your deepest longings, will heal your deepest pains, will overwhelm all of your deepest and darkest, scariest nostalgic nightmares and give you peace. How can he do that? Because he's the God who is with you. Would you bow your heads and pray with us? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We are a sentimental people. 
We are a sentimental people who therefore don't even understand Emmanuel, God, with us. So we thank you, God, that we don't get reminders of the Christian Christmas story in December at Advent. We get resurrection again. We don't get these little pokes and prods in the right direction. We get complete confession and forgiveness in Jesus' name. Because we feel like we're cornered. We feel terrified. We feel outmatched. This is why we run to sentimentalism and nostalgia to hide from that reality. But we thank you, God, that you didn't hide from what terrified us. That you were not spooked, you were not surprised, you were not put on your back foot. You were not some king that is overwhelmed and shakes like a tree in the wind. You are not a Jesus who longs for his heavenly home when things got tough. You are not an impatient God who runs too quickly to the light, not before you've dealt with the darkness. What a God you are. What a Savior who is sufficient. What a Lord who is the author and perfecter of our faith. What a child that was born a king. So, Father, would you mend us up? Would you bind us together? Would you make us not simply a people who have a with us God, but would you make us a people who are with, it, with us together, that we become a people more and more that live in the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.